Hey, American Hauntings fans, it's Troy. You can listen to all the episodes of our latest season on Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your favorite shows. But you're probably thinking, you know, I've already listened to all the shows from the new season. We appreciate that. But have you listened to our other podcast? We have two full seasons of Dead Men Do Tell Tales on our Patreon page that you probably haven't heard. And we're just about to start season three. So become a supporter and check out that podcast at patreon.com slash American Hauntings because you know you don't have enough of us in your life already. But now, on with the show. There's probably nothing more American than planning a trip to one of America's national parks and nothing more peaceful than disconnecting from the world while you're there. Hiking, camping, canoeing, rock climbing, exploring nature, all part of the perfect vacation for an outdoor enthusiast. But what about when it all goes wrong? A wonderful weekend in the outdoors can quickly turn into a disaster. Bad weather, rock slides, unpredictable wildlife, and simply just taking the wrong path. Any or all of these things can turn a trip into a nightmare. There is a dark side to America's unspoiled and stunning wilderness regions. It's been said that as many as 1,600 people go missing every year in America's national parks, but no one really knows for sure. You might wonder why, but that answer is simple. National Park Service, well, they don't keep track of them. They leave it to local law enforcement, wherever the park might be, to track and solve or file away as cold cases those men, women, and children who've gone missing. There is no database of those who have disappeared on federal land. No solid numbers exist. There have been individual reports of people who wandered off and were later rescued, or not, but there is no master list that can be studied. Most of the cases of the missing can be explained by tragic accidents that come with exploring the great outdoors. People becoming lost, murders, even suicides. But as for the rest, well, no one knows. Did any of those people come back after they vanished? Well, no one knows that either. One of the only things we do know about vanishings in America's national parks is where the vast majority of those disappearances seem to take place. And that's the Grand Canyon in Arizona. It's been a place of mystery and wonder since the first Spanish explorers looked down from the rim at the Colorado River far below. For at least two centuries, it was commonly believed that the canyon was so big that no bird smaller than an eagle could fly across it. It was also believed that no one could possibly survive a journey by boat along the rampaging waterway that flowed through it. There were rumors of deadly waterfalls and whirlpools that could swallow a boat of any size. It just simply couldn't be done. And who would be foolish enough to try it? Even challenging the river today with modern equipment, maps, and knowledge of what dangers lay ahead can be death-defying. But a century and a half ago, it was regarded as suicide and certainly not something to be dared for pure thrills. But of course, there were those who tried. The first to attempt it was U.S. Army Lieutenant Joseph C. Ives in 1858. 
He didn't do it because he wanted to. He was ordered to try it by his superiors at the War Department in Washington. This expedition, led by Ives, had been organized to see if it was possible to navigate the Colorado River. If it was, it would be valuable when sending supplies to military posts in Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. These army bureaucrats, who'd never even been west of the Mississippi River, believed the best type of boat to make the voyage up the Colorado, which, by the way, is filled with rocks, waterfalls, and deadly rapids, was on a paddle-wheel steamship with an iron hull. But those bureaucrats weren't the only idiots in our story. Ives was kind of a moron, too. When he first got a look at the Grand Canyon, he pronounced it worthless and predicted that his party would be the only white men to ever travel the river and visit the canyon. Well, needless to say, he was wrong. But Ives' ignorance didn't end there. A few years later, he would resign his commission in the U.S. Army and join the Confederates during the Civil War and was later killed in battle. But first, he made the mistake of trying to conquer the Colorado. The steamship that he used, named Explorer, was first sent in sections to Panama by boat, shipped by rail to the Pacific Ocean, and then floated around the tip of Baja, California, to the muddy delta of the Colorado River. In all, the boat traveled 8,000 miles without ever touching water. With a lot of difficulty, Ives and his men assembled the boat. Even though its iron hull was supposed to make it sturdy, it turned out to be a pretty fragile vessel. The first leg of the journey from Fort Yuma to the mouth of the canyon was slow going and boring. This was a route that had been used before. It wasn't until January 30th, 1858 that the steamer passed all previous points of exploration and continued on into the unknown for a whole 24 hours. The expedition came to a screeching halt just as it entered the Grand Canyon and the bow of the boat was split by a huge rock that was hiding just beneath the water. It collided with the rock so hard that everyone on deck was thrown into the water, the wheelhouse was detached, and the support bolts on the boiler snapped, causing the smokestack to tip over sideways. I mean, how fast had they been going? Anyway, although the boat was badly damaged and taking on water, Ives refused to turn back. He'd already gone deeper into the Grand Canyon than any white man had done before, and he was determined to continue on but that determination didn't last long. The boat limped along upstream until it reached what Ives thought was the Virgin River and he abandoned it on a sandbar. He and his men climbed up out of the canyon, never realizing that certain death had been just up around the next bend in the form of deadly rapids. I'll bet that Ives was a little more impressed with the canyon when he left it than he was when he first arrived. A decade passed before anyone tried it again. The next expedition was led by a man who was almost as great a legend as the Grand Canyon itself would prove to be. This stubborn, tenacious, and pretty much unkillable explorer was John Wesley Powell. He had been born the son of a Methodist minister and grew up an avowed abolitionist. John was constantly called on to defend his family's views against slavery, and he was happy to settle those arguments with his fists. It was fighting that eventually got him kicked out of public school, so his quietly proud father had him privately tutored. When he turned 18, John became a teacher, and a few years later married his first cousin, Emma Dean, which, while really not that uncommon in those days, was against the objections of both families. Emma, though, was just as stubborn as John was. 
The wedding took place in 1861 when John was serving as a second lieutenant under General Ulysses S. Grant during the Civil War. During the Battle of Shiloh, John's right arm was shattered by a bullet and, as most battlefield surgeons did in those days, just amputated it below the shoulder. That kind of injury would have ended the military career of a lesser man, but not John. He returned to combat and rose to the rank of major, commanding an artillery battalion until the end of the war. Once the smoke of the war had cleared, John found that he had too much free time on his hands, and after fighting in the war, found teaching was just too damn boring. He became fascinated with the Western regions, and in the summer of 1867, with the equally adventurous Emma by his side, he led an expedition into the Rocky Mountains to collect mineral and animal specimens for universities in the East. It was during this excursion when John first encountered the waters of the Colorado River, and when a plan began to grow in his mind that would ensure he earned a place in history as one of the greatest explorers of the American West. He decided he would be the first to lead an expedition down the river and through the Grand Canyon, the greatest river run of all time. John spent the better part of the next year seeking financial backing for the expedition, and with help from his longtime friend and now president, Ulysses S. Grant, he fully outfitted the expedition. So on May 24, 1869, he and a crew of nine men launched four specially built boats at Green River, Wyoming. As a handful of local folks cheered them on, these sturdy, round-bottomed boats started off downstream. Each of the boats had been double-ribbed with cured oak, and each was loaded with two tons of supplies in waterproof bulkheads. John led the group in the first boat, which he, of course, called the Emma Dean, scouting the way and giving names to the side canyons, mountains, and outcroppings along the way. The expedition hit the first rough water at Lidore Canyon in Utah. The once peaceful waterway became a raging torrent, and John, from his vantage point in the lead boat, signaled the other vessels to turn toward the riverbank. But one of the boats, dubbed No Name, responded too slowly and began spinning in a circle, then smashed into some rocks, exploding into kindling. The three crew members were thrown into the water, but managed to swim to a sandbar where they were rescued. The accident was a sobering experience for the men, and as they would find out over and over again, the river was unforgiving to those who made mistakes. John named the rapids Disaster Falls, and the expedition moved on. The remaining boats reached the confluence of the Green River in the Colorado on June 16th, and they were soon on their way to the Grand Canyon, racing through 64 sets of rapids on the way. John's journal eloquently described entering the Grand Canyon as a, quote, plunge into the great unknown. He wrote of the deep river, the narrow canyons, and the way the water rolled, boiled, and dragged the boats into rapids and whirlpools. It washed over the sides of the boats, capsizing them, and sometimes making it impossible for them to steer or reach the riverbanks. The expedition eventually became too much for some of John's men. About halfway through the wild and unpredictable canyon, three of them decided they'd reached the limits of their endurance. They said farewell to John and the remaining crew and hiked out of the canyon. Unfortunately for them, though, they climbed out of the frying pan and fell right into the fire. The three men took a wrong turn into the desert, and they died there in the empty country. The rest of the crew plunged ahead, braving dangerous rapids to 
coast through calm stretches, singing loud tunes that echoed back at them from the looming canyon walls. At the end of August, they reached the Mormon town of Colville, where Lake Mead is now located, and realized they had made it all the way through. John became a national hero as newspapers across the country shared the news that the Grand Canyon had been conquered by a one-armed man. Oh, but not so fast. Many claim that John had not been the first to do so, but the second. A new claim surfaced that another man had survived a run through the canyon and had been alone when he did it. Folks in Colville remembered spotting a crude raft coming out of the canyon one day in 1867. A pathetic figure was clinging to it, half-naked, starved, and delirious from exposure to the sun. Several days passed before he could tell his rescuers what had happened. His name was James White, and he claimed he'd been a prospector working in the wild and unexplored regions between the San Juan Mountains and the Colorado River with two partners. After an attack by Native Americans that killed one of the men, White and his remaining companion built a small raft and escaped onto the river. After a wild set of rapids, the other prospector had drowned and White continued on, surviving on a few cans of beans and some lizards he was able to catch and kill. By the end of his first week in the canyon, he was so hungry, he ate the leather scabbard of his knife. It took more than two weeks, but White and his raft finally made it to Colville. After leaving the Mormons, he continued his life as a prospector and was soon forgotten. Until the news that John Wesley Powell had conquered the Grand Canyon and started appearing in newspapers anyway. When the newspapers began promoting John's accomplishment, White's brother took a letter that the prospector had written to him describing his ordeal to the press. It was published in several newspapers, and a reporter from Denver managed to track down White and interview him. White stuck to his story, but admitted that he didn't know precisely where he'd entered the canyon or how many days he'd actually traveled on the Colorado River. Well, John Wesley Powell scoffed at the story when he heard it, knowing from firsthand experience that no one could make it through the entire canyon in the way that White described. According to John, the prospector was a, quote, monumental prevaricator, the biggest liar that ever told a tale about the Colorado River. Yeah, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Either way, the controversy was never resolved because White's account couldn't be verified or debunked. However, it was an undisputed fact that Powell did make it down the canyon and he was publicly honored as the man who tamed the Grand Canyon. After it was granted national park status in 1919, a monument was built for him on the West Rim that commemorated his achievement. By then, James White had long since died in obscurity. Other adventurers literally followed in the wake of John Wesley Powell. In 1937, Haldane Holstrom made the first official solo run in the Colorado River following Powell's route from Green River, Wyoming to the Boulder Dam. In those days, it was believed that challenging the Grand Canyon was strictly an undertaking for a man. If a sturdy male thrill seeker could barely survive the experience, then well, it was well beyond the capabilities of a woman. Why do men always say things like this? Don't they know they'll just be proven wrong? And they were in 1938, 
when Dr. Elzada Clover and Lois Jodder became the first women to successfully raft through the canyon. They survived, of course, but many people before them, men and women, didn't. Until recently, you had a much better chance at dying in the Merciless River than making it through the canyon alive. A disturbing number of people have bravely entered the canyon over the years and have never come out the other side. A death in the Grand Canyon was a lonely one, and many vanished under circumstances that will remain forever mysterious. One of the earliest deaths was discovered by an expedition in June of 1889. A lone skeleton was found crushed inside the wreckage of a wooden wagon more than 150 miles downstream from the closest safe river crossing. It was surmised that the man had misjudged the depth and fury of the river and had tried to cross it, only to be swept away by the angry water. Even experienced river runners were sometimes lost to the river. The disappearance of Bert Loper was a perfect example of this. He'd been born on July 31, 1869, the very day that John Wesley Powell successfully conquered the Grand Canyon and arrived in Colville. He believed this made him destined to explore the canyon and the Colorado River. Others would come to believe it made him destined to die there, too. In the early 1890s, Bert spent a lot of time on the San Juan River, working as a prospector. It was not until 1907 that he ventured onto the Colorado and decided to make it through the canyon. That summer, he and three friends set out in three steel boats. The first boat was lost at Cataract Canyon. The second was wrecked at the Hans Rapid, and the third was damaged so badly at Hermit Rapid that it barely made it through the rest of the journey. Bert's friends considered the trip miserable and terrifying, but Bert thought it was the most exciting experience of his life, and he became hooked on river running. He braved the Colorado again and again, eventually becoming a guide and a boatman for several scientific expeditions. Over the next 40 years, he earned the moniker of the Grand Old Man of the Colorado. In 1949, shortly before his 80th birthday, he decided to celebrate the milestone by going down the river one last time. He pushed off from Lee's Ferry on July 7th and planned to emerge from the canyon on July 31st, his birthday and the anniversary of John Wesley Powell's success. Bert was accompanied by a friend, Wayne Nickel, when he shoved off for what turned out to be an ill-fated journey. They didn't make it very far. The boat capsized at unnamed rapid on the second day, and Bert was last seen being swept down the river ahead of it. Wayne was also thrown into the water, but managed to make it to shore. Rescuers quickly found him, and Wayne joined their desperate search for Bert Loper. They found the boat jammed into the rocks 17 miles downriver from where it capsized, but there was no trace of Bert. The grand old man of the Colorado seemed to be gone for good. Then, 26 years later, in 1975, a hiker stumbled across human bones that had washed ashore just below Lava Falls Rapid. The bones were eventually identified. They belonged to Bert Loper. Those bones were buried next to his wife's grave in Sandy, Utah, finally bringing an end to Bert's story. Well, sort of. Bert's bones may be gone from the Grand Canyon, but many believe his ghost is still there. They swear they've seen him in his boat on the river at night, and whenever a camper's coffee pot overturns or a piece of gear is mysteriously lost, old Bert Loper always gets the blame. 
Now, I don't want you to think that Bert's death was the only one that occurred in the Grand Canyon. There have been many others over the years, along with accidents, disappearances, an airplane disaster, and even a lost underground city that was allegedly discovered there, although that's another story all its own. Aside from that, the most mysterious incident was the vanishing that occurred there in 1928 when honeymooners Glenn and Bessie Hyde arrived at the Grand Canyon with plans to have an adventure on the Colorado River. Well, after a lengthy cold open, let me welcome you to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. America is a place filled with mystery and darkness. It's a place where tragic events occur and where mysteries exist for which no rational explanation can be found. Those kinds of mysteries include unexplained disappearances, just like the ones we've been talking about this season. We're opening the files about people who have vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. Their stories are often bizarre, unexpected, and sometimes seem impossible. But one thing that we do know is that they did happen, and that these people have simply walked out the door one day and never returned. Their stories have no conclusion. Their cases remain open. Their mysteries unsolved. They are gone, but we will not allow them to be forgotten. This is episode six of our latest season. So pack your clothes, grab your camera, load up the station wagon for a trip to one of the wildest and most mysterious regions in America. Glenn Hyde was born in Spokane, Washington in 1898, the middle child of Rollin and Mary Hyde. He was raised in Washington, California, Canada, and Idaho, and after attending college, he worked with his father on their family farm in Hanson, Idaho, in the southern part of the state. In 1928, he married Bessie Haley in Twin Falls. Well, Bessie had lived a much different life than her new husband. She was seven years younger than Glenn, born in 1905 in Tacoma Park, Maryland, just north of Washington, D.C., Glenn had been raised on farms around the Pacific Northwest. Bessie attended Marshall College in West Virginia, but never graduated. She left school and had a brief marriage with a former high school classmate named Earl Helmick. When that didn't work out, she went west to San Francisco, where she became a bohemian, as they called them in those days, and studied art in 1926 and 27. Glenn and Bessie met aboard a steamship from San Francisco to Los Angeles in 1927 and had an instant connection. On the very day that Bessie's divorce became final, the pair were married. Bessie embraced her new life, working the Hyde Farm side by side with her husband through the summer of 1928. And that fall, the two of them decided to take a honeymoon trip. But this would be no ordinary honeymoon. They planned the adventure of a lifetime. They would run the rapids of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon in a boat they'd built themselves. Glenn was an experienced river runner who had traversed the Salmon and Snake Rivers in Idaho. His new wife shared his adventurous spirit, and they planned to make their first trip as a married couple a historic feat. Glenn planned to be the man who made the trip through the canyon the fastest, and Bessie, of course, would be the first woman to conquer the canyon. Well, their expedition got a lot of attention. 
Newspapers ran stories about them, focusing particularly on Bessie, the cute 22-year-old woman who hoped to make history. If she made it, she'd become an overnight celebrity. The Hydes hoped to come home from their adventure to lucrative book deals and lecture invitations. Well, they'd become famous all right, just not in the way they planned. It would be a honeymoon from which the couple wouldn't return. The pair shoved off on Glenn's homemade scow from Green River, Utah on October 20th with the goal of reaching Needles, California by early December. The first leg of the trip went smoothly. They'd packed more than enough provisions and Glenn's river riding and boat building skills stood up to the Colorado's rough waters. It was a bright morning on November 16th when Glenn and Bessie hiked up from the river on the Bright Angel Trail and knocked on the door of the Cole Brothers Photography Studio. Emery and Ellsworth Kolb were the foremost photographers of the Grand Canyon in the early 20th century. Between 1901 and 1941, they captured the magnificence of the canyon in a way that no one else had done before or since. The brothers lived on the rim of the canyon. They constructed a combination of home and studio on the edge of the cliff, looking out across the canyon and looming over the Colorado River far below. A sign outside the building read, Bright Angel Road, riding animals, pack animals, loose animals, $1 each. That was the equivalent of around $35 in today's dollars when the Kolbs first posted the sign in 1901 and was still around $17 worth when Glenn and Bessie walked past that sign on their way to the studio that morning. By 1928, there was a steady stream of sightseers who were happy to hand over $1 bills to the Kolbs for the privilege of straddling a burrow from a nearby stable and riding it down the trail into the canyon. They kept a pretty close eye on everyone who came and went on the trail, so they were surprised when the hides hiked up from the canyon down below. The couple introduced themselves to the Kolbs and told them they were honeymooners who'd spent the last 26 days floating on the treacherous river toward the Grand Canyon. They hoped to conclude the journey in another week or two and asked the Kolbs if they would take a photo of them standing on the rim of the canyon so they could return and pick it up after their trip was over. Well, Emery Kolb happily agreed. After the photograph was taken, he asked the couple about their boat, and they explained they had built it themselves in Idaho and were planning to navigate the canyon with it. While Emery had known many river runners over the years and knew a lot about what was needed for boats to successfully make the trip, he asked several more questions, but when he learned they had no life preservers to wear while braving the rapids, he was shocked. He warned them about how dangerous the river could be, but Glenn laughed. They'd made it this far, he said, and didn't see why the next leg of the trip would be any different. Well, Emery tried to tell him that traveling on the river was much different than making it through the canyon, but Glenn really wasn't interested in hearing it. Bessie, though, Emery thought, that was another story. He could see how nervous she was about what was ahead of them. He could also see she had no desire to go back onto the river. There had been terror in her eyes when Emery tried to describe the deadly rapids ahead of them. But what was he supposed to do? A man didn't interfere in another man's marriage. Maybe Glenn was right. They'd made it this far, and maybe they'll do just fine when they get to what's in front of them. But Emery would later say deep down he knew that wasn't true. As Glenn and Bessie prepared to leave, Emery's daughter, Emily, came out of the studio to greet the young couple. 
The pretty young woman was wearing a new dress and a pair of shoes that she'd bought at the same time. When Bessie reached out to shake Emily's hand, she looked down at her own wrinkled and sun-faded clothing and smiled sadly at the younger girl. I wonder if I shall ever wear pretty shoes again, Bessie sighed. She let go of Emily's hand, her smile now gone, and she turned to follow her husband down Bright Angel Trail. Fellow photographer and a friend of the Cole brothers, Adolph Sutro, arrived at the studio as Glenn and Bessie were leaving, and he joined the newlyweds for several miles before they parted ways at Hermit Rapid. The turbulent spot was the last place the Hydes were seen alive. If anyone saw Glenn and Bessie Hyde alive after that, no record of that sighting exists. None of the Kolbs slept well on the night that Glenn and Bessie continued their trip. Emery and his daughter were worried mostly about the haunted young woman that was Bessie Hyde. He kept thinking about her parting words and the sadness in her face. At barely five feet tall and slender, her brown hair cut fashionably short, she seemed much too fragile to be attempting to run the river. But she'd already made it for more than three weeks. Perhaps the Kolbs misjudged her and that she was much tougher than she seemed. But, well... Sadly, that was probably wishful thinking. Two more weeks passed. November became December, and there was no sign of the hides. It was Emery Kolb who organized the first search, even convincing a friend who owned a small airplane to fly down into the inner gorge of the canyon, which had never been attempted before. On his second pass, he spotted the hides' boat. It was snagged on some rocks at the edge of the river, 140 miles from where Glenn and Bessie had last been seen 32 days before. Emery joined the rescue party that went down into the canyon from the rim. When the group reached the boat, they found that everything on board was still stacked and secure. Their food, clothing, even their books were neatly in place. They even found Bessie's diary. All that was missing was Glenn and Bessie. The journal recovered from the boat had entries that dated up to November 30th, revealing that the Hydes had spent another 12 days on the water at least. According to Bessie's account, they had actually been ahead of schedule and made it as far as Diamond Creek, a dozen miles from where the abandoned boat was found. Nothing in her diary hinted at the trip being cut short. The search party combed the area, walking for miles, calling out loudly as their voices echoed against the canyon walls. They checked side canyons, rapids, caves, and rocky outcroppings, but there was no sign of them. No clothing, no discarded food, no sign of a campfire. Nothing. If the couple had made it down the river, Bessie would have been the first woman to successfully navigate the canyon, but now she and her husband had vanished without a trace. When the news of their disappearance made the newspapers and reached their families, both of their fathers funded several search parties into the canyon. Glenn's father, Rollin, kept searching for an entire year, but no trace of the couple was found, no matter where the searchers looked. His search only ended because he was hit by a potato truck in Twin Falls and was killed. He went to his grave without learning the fate of his son and daughter-in-law. And he wasn't the only one. To this day, not a single trace of Glenn or Bessie has ever been found. They simply vanished, wearing only the clothes on their backs and leaving everything else behind. But how? Or maybe why? There are plenty of stories, theories, and wild rumors that have been circulated over the years about their fates. 
Most veteran whitewater rafters and outdoorsmen believe the couple simply drowned and that their boat managed to stay intact even after the river washed Glenn and Bessie overboard. Given their lack of experience with rivers as dangerous as the Colorado, this seemed likely to those who knew the river well. Others suggested the couple had been attacked by thieves who killed the couple and then hid their bodies someplace where they've never been discovered. Well, this is possible, but really unlikely, mostly because nothing seemed to be missing from the boat. As far as the search party could tell, all their gear and belongings were still intact. Seems hard to believe the hides have been killed by outlaws, but that doesn't mean that murder hasn't been widely suggested. There's a theory that suggests Bessie may have killed Glenn and then left the canyon to start a new life. The educated young bohemian from the East Coast had already started to regret marrying the older farmer and the honeymoon through the Grand Canyon. Some say that was the last straw. And I can certainly understand why she'd feel that way, along with probably a lot of our female listeners. But there's no evidence this actually happened. This theory was first proposed back in 1971 when an elderly woman named Liz Cutler confessed she was Bessie Hyde and that she stabbed Glenn after a disagreement. She dumped his corpse in the river and it had been swept away, she claimed. Liz later recanted her story, but it did get some people thinking. Glenn had been older than Bessie and he was often described as controlling and domineering, which... I mean, really isn't that big of a surprise for a husband in the 1920s. However, some claim it went beyond just that and that Bessie was actually afraid of Glenn. Maybe a chance to get rid of him well, simply fell in her lap when they were on the river and, you know, they'd been warned it was very dangerous. She saw her shot and she took it. Now, did that really happen? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But those who proposed this idea always wondered if maybe Bessie had a little help. After Emery Kolb died in 1976, friends were sorting through his belongings and discovered a human skeleton that had been hidden under a small boat in his garage. It belonged to a young man in his 20s who matched Glenn's height and build. But unlike Glenn, there was no mystery about the cause of death for this man. He had a bullet hole in his skull. Well, rumors spread that the bones belonged to Glenn, although tests run in 1985 said they probably weren't. But, you know... This was before DNA, so there remained some serious doubts about Emery for years. And since he was dead, he couldn't defend himself against accusations he'd murdered Glenn and held on to his bones for 50 years. But unfortunately, or fortunately for Glenn, his name was officially cleared in 2008, thanks to a black and white photography collection that the son of a former park ranger had donated to the Grand Canyon Museum. Several photos showed a skeleton resembling the bones found on Emery Kolb's property and a museum technician who connected the remains to reports of an unidentified man who died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head in 1933. Retired Grand Canyon National Park criminal investigator Joe Sumner heard about the photographs and after comparing them to the Kolb skeleton, confirmed they were a match. The only mystery now was how the bones had ended up in Emery's garage, but that part had never been solved. Now, my favorite theory about what happened to Bessie Hyde was that she disappeared for years and then returned to the Grand Canyon with a new name and identity, Georgie White Clark. Georgie was one of the most famous whitewater rafters of the mid-20th century, male or female. 
She was an unconventional river guide with a penchant for leopard print swimsuits, canned food cookouts, and a taste for adventure that made her a canyon legend. She and her Royal River Rats rafting trips were featured in magazines like Life, on television programs like The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and in countless newspaper stories over the years. She became famous as the first woman to swim the Grand Canyon and the first female outfitter to offer canyon expeditions for tourists. Georgie had a life story that she told to everyone, and it was a doozy. After her 15-year-old daughter was killed in an accident in 1944, Georgie began taking long hikes in Arizona and Utah with her friend Henry Ailson as a way to try and deal with her grief. This led to the pair donning life jackets in 1945 and swimming and floating the lower part of the canyon. The next year, they floated the river on a driftwood raft and then in 1947 became the first to navigate the rapids of the Green and Colorado Rivers in World War II surplus inflatable rafts. Georgie had started her death-defying adventures because she felt she had nothing to live for after her daughter's death, but she turned her grief into a passion for the river and the outdoors. In the early 1950s, Georgie started tying together two and three rafts to make a floating island for passengers, and eventually she invented the G-Rig, a raft made from lashing three pontoons together and powering it with an outboard motor. These thrill rigs, as she called them, created the modern-day river outfitting business. But when you signed up for an excursion with Georgie, you couldn't expect the kind of pampering the other outfitters provided for their customers. If you want to eat, go to a restaurant, she told her guests. If you want to see the canyon, you come with me. Meals on her rafts trips usually consisted of canned goods that she cooked by dropping them into a pot of boiling water. The labels came off, and so whatever you ate was a mystery until you opened the can. She was, as they would have said in the 1950s, a hell of a dame. And she lived every bit of her life to the fullest in 2022, she was even featured on a U.S. postage stamp. Well, in 1992, Georgie died from cancer at the age of 81. And soon after, there was a sensational twist to her already larger-than-life life story. On the very day of her funeral, evidence that was found at her home in Las Vegas suggested that Georgie had fabricated parts of her life. Now, no one had to look for it. Georgie had left it all in plain sight, expecting it to be found when her friends came to sort through her personal effects. Most of them had never even been in her home before, even though they'd known Georgie for decades. She'd always been very private, and they realized that Georgie's story had been, well, whatever Georgie wanted it to be. Bill George, who owned a competing rafting company called Western River Expeditions that was based in Salt Lake City, conducted Georgie's funeral. At her request, Bill had purchased Georgie's company when she became too ill to continue with it. After the funeral ended, Bill got a call from Georgie's close friend and nurse, Lee McCurry, who told him he wouldn't believe the stuff she'd found in Georgie's house. Bill, we don't know who we're burying today. Lee told him. For starters, Georgie wasn't even her name. According to her birth certificate, it was Bessie DeRoss. The name Clark, as well as another surname she also used, White, were the last names of the two husbands she'd divorced. She'd written in the past about growing up in Chicago, but she'd actually been born in Oklahoma and had spent her childhood in Colorado, 
Maybe. I mean, really? Who the hell knows? Because here's where it gets weird. Among Georgie's things was a notarized marriage certificate for Glenn Hyde and Bessie Haley. Lee had also found a pistol that Georgie had kept in her underwear drawer. Now, Bill George would later say, if you match it up to one of the pictures of Glenn and Bessie Hyde in the canyon, it looks like the same pistol. Now, I'm not saying Georgie was Bessie Hyde, but man, the whole thing is a little spooky. Well, the information leaked out to others in the rafting and outdoors crowd. And as it did, people who knew Georgie started to point out other oddities. Georgie was well known for developing the triple rig, which was the, you know, three rafts tied together and run with one oar downstream and one upstream. It was clever, but she hadn't actually invented it. It was the same method that Glenn and Bessie had used with their boat. One thing everyone knew about Georgie was how much she disliked Grand Canyon photographer Emery Kolb when he was alive. Or at least everyone assumed she disliked him. Because if he was in a restaurant, she would turn around and leave. If he was at a meeting she'd planned to attend, she refused to take part in it. But what if she didn't hate Emery at all? Maybe she avoided him because he was one of the few people who might have recognized her as Bessie Hyde. But was Georgie actually Bessie? Well, many people believe she was, but just as many others don't buy it. They admit that some of the things about the two women are, are kind of eerie, but they believe that photos of them show two very different women. Some of those who knew Georgie best have found little to substantiate the theory that she was Bessie Hyde, but they wouldn't put it past her to leave the clues behind just to keep people guessing because Georgie always loved a good story. So if Georgie White Clark was not Bessie Hyde, then what happened to Bessie and her unlucky husband? Did she really kill him and then vanish to start a new life? Or did they both perish in the furious waters of the canyon? And if they did, how was their boat in such good condition and their bodies nowhere to be found? Maybe it was, as some of the searchers believed at the time, just a fluke. They believe the rapids flooded the boat, swept the couple off into the river, and left the rickety, homemade, poorly constructed boat intact. Now, does that really not make sense to anyone else, or is it just me? The questions about the fate of Glenn and Bessie Hyde will never be answered, no matter how much we daydream, speculate, and ponder. Only the Grand Canyon and the treacherous Colorado River will ever know for sure what happened to them in 1928. The rest of us, we're just left to wonder. There's one thing that the American Hauntings podcast knows about. And that's mothers. We featured a lot of great mothers in a lot of our episodes. Pearl Curran, Julia Lemp, Sarah Moore, Marie Laveau, Jane Mansfield, Tamsin Donner, Delphine LaLaurie, Belle Gunness. Okay, maybe leave out those last two. But what I'm saying is that with Mother's Day coming soon, you need a truly special gift for your mom because, well, she's not Belle Gunness. So let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that literally turns your mom's life story 
into a book. So here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your mom a question in her email, the same way she sends you questions about your dating life or when you plan to give her grandkids. Anyway, these can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you want to ask. She replies by either typing in the answers or by recording her own voice. Then mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a keepsake book, and they can create an audiobook that uses her voice recordings, preserving her voice and her stories forever. As anyone who doesn't have their mom around anymore can tell you, having your mother's stories about growing up, being a kid, and overcoming life's challenges will be something that you and your kids will treasure. And let's be honest, your mom has given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a very cool way to share them. Honestly, I decided to try this out for myself and I sent it to my mom. And she's not exactly a whiz at computers, but she still found it really easy to use. My mom might have had a little more unusual childhood than a lot of mothers do. So I'm really glad to have this. And I think you'll be glad to give one to your mother too. So check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code HAUNTINGS at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code HAUNTINGS for 10% off today. of the American Hauntings podcast. Wait, wait, wait. I interrupted you. I was still talking. Sorry. Okay, that's okay. All right. Go ahead and start over. It took seven seasons to get an apology for being interrupted. I know. (laughs) I know. I know. Ready? (laughs) Okay. Three, two. Thanks for returning for more episodes of the American Hauntings podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is season seven of the podcast, which we call. Do you want to do it? You want me to do it? I, am I doing it? I gone. Last time you okay. did, so it's I gone. Do it, so yeah, it is I, gone. Now with your new hobby of death metal. I oh my gosh, I'm gonna to do, do it. it I'm oh. gonna do it. But I'm your co-host Cody Beckett. With me is my co-host, author, story, and crime buff, the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, how are hey, you? bud. It's been a hell of a last 15 minutes <laughs> 15 minutes 24 hours whatever well, that too yeah but uh, <laughs> specifically the last couple of minutes i appreciate you being flexible we're trying to figure out tech stuff every week it's a new thing. i know i know it is something new every week but i think we've got a handle on it this time so yeah. we will wait and see so i think we're here we're sounding good fingers um, crossed i don't know if you can tell um i hadn't been able to say this for a long time i'm sunburned yeah, I see that for the first. I am not, time. although you can't tell from my screen right now because I have, it is blasted white because the sun is right behind me because we don't normally record at this time. Yeah, of it day. looks like an angel so, is coming down. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, exactly. Well, yeah. it's yes, but exactly. I'm red because I have two you colors, red. red and white, and right I now know, I'm happy too. to be red. And I was barely in the sun, just walking around, you know, getting a little exercise on a well, Sunday. That's all and- it takes, brother. Spring is here. I know, um, yeah. as evidenced by you know, I spent the weekend at Galena. Yeah, how uh, how was that? Conference? It was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I love going to Galena, but um, it was like two like several tornado warnings. Oh, uh, right, on right, Friday right. night. So everybody kept saying, "Take shelter in the basement." Okay, this building, this hotel we were in was built in 1855. <laughs> oh, you say I don't fine. care how deep it is. <laughs> I, I'm not feeling confident about being in the basement. 
but anyway, everything was fine. So the, it was and a it good event, cleared though? out the crowd. So it was kind of nice. I mean, uh, the parts outside on the street. You know, right. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, no, that's awesome. I'm glad you guys had a good time. Yeah, it was fun at that event. And like yeah. you said, it is spring. Um, people say love is in the air. I don't yeah. feel that way, um, but <laughs> I like that the sun's out. So yes, that's, that's yes. great. It's a um, nice day today. Yeah. So things are transitioning. Things are changing. The weather's changing. What's going on what, with events? What do you What do you have coming up? Yeah, we're 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 racking up a, a lot of stuff for spring now that people are out and about a little more. Um, we are. Um, like this next weekend, I'll be doing a, a dinner event with HH Holmes already sold out devil in the white city thing already done, but I'll also be doing uh, gangs of Southern Illinois, the American witch, which, um, pairs nicely with my new book. Um, if you haven't ordered it yet, mm-hmm. and thanks to all of you who did, um, that has been, uh, another really, uh, big one. Uh, I've been excited about it. See how many have flown off the shelves, but anyway, I'm also doing the St. Louis exorcism, Edgar Allan Poe, Lizzie Borden, a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, that you can spend an evening um, with me, um, not just you, but you know, a group of people um, having dinner in one of these events. Uh, I'm also doing a lot of goes to the River Road tours um, that I've got one of those coming up on the 14th of April, uh, which is always fun. Once spring hits, especially, it's always fun to get to do that when to be out and about. Uh, we also have a, a brand new or an alternate version of it that we just started called the Great River Hauntings Dinner Tour, mm. which is a dinner at the other end of the road. Instead of starting with dinner in Alton, we're going to head up to Grafton, have dinner up there at Pier Marquette Lodge, and then uh, we'll be doing the tour. Uh, we have yeah. another new tour we started too, the Spirits of Alton Tour, another dinner tour that stays in Alton, but does things that I don't do on any other tours and none of our other guides do them either um it's all brand new stuff that we uh, have incorporated out of the new edition of haunted alton which has been pretty fun um yeah. so i think we finally got a handle on that one too the first one was um interesting yeah the second one went much better so the third one we're doing at the end of the month so <laughs> it should be you know, perfect right theoretically right. So, yeah it should be fine do people yeah a lot play? of people think um you know they've already done what we you know everything we have to do in alton but we haven't there's always new stuff so uh anyway go to dinnerandspirits.com and you can check it out um also coming back from a ghost conference this weekend i don't want to um, fail to mention that the haunted america conference is coming up in june and it is filling up fast uh we've broken every attendance record we've ever had mm-hmm. and we're hoping to see a lot of our listeners there cody and i will both be there uh cody will be at the booth talking to people recording interviews and more i will just be um hosting the event floating around and it, it really is the biggest and i think the best ghost conference of the year um you know this thing dates back to 1997 first one in the country and the only one that dates back to even close to that far there aren't any others around yeah Uh, and this year we're at the new location uh as we talked about before out at lewison college with the uh new uh, theater style seats more space better sound twice the vendor space all that stuff new workshops uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, and I know that a lot of our after hour events are already sold out, but we do have a lot of stuff left. So if you want to take part in the conference and some of the after hour stuff, you've got to get your tickets now before it's too late. Um, so go to ghostconference.net and get booked. And the last thing I will mention is very short. 
But as of today, uh, in our recordings, we are now celebrating the 30th anniversary of American Hauntings. Um, this was when we no began shit. 30 years ago. Um, this is when uh, I, my, I got my first my first book came out, started to do the, the tours in Decatur. Um, so April of 1993, this, this is our, uh, our anniversary. So Congrats, 30 man. years, you know? So That's I started when I was five. Uh-huh. I was so, gonna say I, you know, it's older than me. That's a tour amazing. for toddlers, you know. That's so tour for you know. toddlers. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Congrats. That's that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. It's, it's um it's exciting and frightening and um never really thought that uh we'd be around be around this long. I mean, I didn't even think I'd live to see 30, right. let alone have a company this 30 years. Well, long. you are you know what age you want to go out at, right? Have your Viking yep, 115, that's my oh, plan. Jeez. And if you go to the um, you know, if you go to the conference and you're there and I like you, I can also take you on my after hours event tour which is going around <laughs> Lewis and Clark campus and say that's where we secretly did beer bonks, that's where we <laughs> secretly cried when we couldn't understand, you know, calculus. Yeah. Like yeah. I can give you a whole history. And you can show building. people where you saw your ghost. I can't. Campus. Yes, I, I know exactly where it is. Yeah, it was. It was college. So uh, I know. I, I can't I believe you remember that story. That's great. I do remember that story because it's you know the, we always talk about Harriet Haskell, and uh, this was some young hot version of her or I someone wonder. else. Yeah, so. I wonder. And, <laughs> and I'm not also, sure she ever had a hot young version, but in in my I mean, mind. you never know. People yeah. like her. So, it is, it's very weird to see something like that and to also be like, oh, this is why women get upset when men tell them they should smile more. It's like, <laughs> I don't like this. Um, anyway, okay, awesome. Upcoming events. I'm super stoked for all of this. It's going to be hell of a good time, I would say. And I think I'm also just like, I always get this way in the first few sunny days of the year again. It's oh, I know, me too. I'm finally getting neurotransmitters and vitamin D and things. Me too. Like and that. is it, can we, can we mention that your sister had a baby? She is like about ready to pop. Right oh my God, now. she's still in labor? Still, because oh, it's it's early, it's, it's early for her. And so they're trying to yeah. slow it down. Oh, I not, see. Okay. Not good. make complications. Yeah, but how, Oh well, yeah, we don't May tenth on the May tenth on the show. Oh no, May tenth. Yeah, I so, didn't realize it was that long. Shoot. Yeah, so they got to um, slow okay, it down. Okay, well, let's but, tone yeah. down the excitement there. I will take that back a step. Uh, don't tell Cassidy that I asked. Yes, I'm actually going to go edit the podcast from uh, her the hospital, hospital room after this because it's okay, eight minutes cool. away and I'd rather just Good. be there. And Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. So anyway, but thank you for asking. Um, uh, let's dive into a listener review real quick. Um, sure. Um, Apple iTunes, again, that's, you know, it's the big one. That's what kind of really matters and it really, really helps. If you can leave any, any reviews, appreciate it anywhere, but if you can't oh, yeah, do it on absolutely. Apple, great. This one I think is from you all or Val. I've never seen different fonts like this before. Don't you oh. have some weird font on like Instagram or something, don't you? For um, your name? So, sometimes you can pull you can pull some stuff in from different places, but um it's it's kind of hard to do, or okay. at least for me, because I'm not, you know. Right, just probably paste and keeps keeps that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of yeah. stuff. Okay, well, so this one says uh, it's titled "Amazing." It says I've been binge listening to uh, listening at work since I found this podcast. I just started season four and love it so far. Usually, paranormal podcasts are just. A long time ago, someone died here. Now people hear and see stuff sometimes. I always want to know the real history behind the events, and you all do a great job of presenting it. You guys are the only thing keeping me awake at my third shift job, so please Oof. don't stop anytime soon. Okay, first off, is your third shift job dangerous because we <laughs> don't use us if it's like an important <laughs> thing? Just in case. Yeah, yeah. because some people yeah. use us as a sleep aid, and I don't think that's a wise uh, idea no, for you. Uh, that's true. 
Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, P.S. Um, there's some more Patreon stuff about people being locked in your cellar. I don't okay, know. Okay, yeah, but it just says about. I subscribed so you could afford to feed the poor people locked in your cellar. But I actually found out who that was. So, oh, oh, okay. Yes. So yes. we're cool. We're good. Yes. Oh, okay. everything is fine. It okay. is uh, two, um, uh, two of uh, out of three triplets I happen to know very well, oh. um, who is the uh, son and daughter of one of my a couple of my best friends. So they thought that would be very funny. I so, mean, I thought it was funny. But, it was um, funny. It was funny. And then when I found out who it was, it totally made sense. So because you're like, oh, they were kept in my basement. Now yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, they really had a reason to say that kind of thing. So, right. Right. OK, well, I'm glad we got to the bottom of it because I was like, I don't know what to do here. Um, yes, their mother spilled the beans. So, OK, yeah. uh, <laughs> my, man. So, yeah. OK, so it's been said that as many as 1600 people go missing every year in America's national parks. Isn't there like a really big thing about so many people go missing? We don't know how to count it. We don't know where they yeah, go. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, yeah, that's an estimate. Right. Because no one actually keeps track. Um, the National Park Service and I I. I got curious about this and ask about it firsthand. You know, we deal with the National Park Service as part of our tour company. And so I decided to ask if this was true. And it, it is. They, wow. they don't keep track. They That is on local law enforcement, wherever the park is. Oh, so it's I mean, fine. They will assist when asked, but they're not responsible. So the national government, the federal government does not want to be responsible. So they put it on local law enforcement. Right. So really, we don't have an exact number. Um, but I mean, you know, as, as I mentioned, there's a lot of things that happen that don't have anything to do with Bigfoot UFOs zapping out of another dimension or anything right. like that. It's just, I mean, you know, bad things happen outside sometimes. I mean, and it gets worse all the time. Yeah. Every time I turn around, there's a new tick or some sort of right. disease they're carrying. They're, they're like, oh, you know, if you're going to go outside, wear long pants and long sleeve shirts. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's really, you know, in the desert, it's 95 degrees, or even in the woods, it's 95 degrees. That's not really practical. Right. Know? But I also understand the problem with it, since I one time got a tick on my butt and uh, oh. gave me tick paralysis, which is an actual thing. Uh, so your butt didn't went. work anymore? No, my it wasn't my butt. It was just oh. like my whole leg. I had oh. to have it removed, like surgery. Your, le your leg awful. removed? No, no, just the tick, <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't know was there. So wow. I rode all, uh, home like eight hours from Pennsylvania with a tick. Oh, uh, was it Renee's fault? Uh, yeah, well, we'll blame it on Gettysburg. So okay. it was a, a Gettysburg is probably a Confederate tick. So, right. Yeah, I so, mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. And I mean, yeah, we were talking about or thinking about, you know, people getting lost in national parks and everything. It's like, if I had a dime for every time I was in college, got stoned at Pierre Marquette and didn't know where I was, <laughs> like, I'm probably on some of these lists that I'm out there looking for uh, yeah, myself. Yeah, probably. You know? Yeah, probably so. Trying to help. Uh, people trying to cross the Grand Canyon uh, by boat, by raft, things like that. What I mean, the, well, they're not really the, crossing it. They're just well, traversing they're a canyon. They're, right, they're right, paddling right. down river. And if you take a look, even from a sky view, mm -hmm. you can see how windy and, you know, things that the, the Colorado is as it runs through the canyon. And you also have to remember when you look at the giganticness, if that's a word, mm -hmm. of the Grand Canyon, that's the river that carved it. Right. So, <laughs> you know, 
I'm not going to have know, any mercy. Back, then, back in the in the day, in the the 19th century, you were really taking your life in your hands, yes. trying this stuff. And and well, as we learned uh, into the 1920s. So. Yes, yeah. So we'll talk about a couple of the uh, preliminary stuff before we get to the main story. So the first attempt was U.S. Army Lieutenant uh, Joseph C. Ives in 1858. Troy, basically, to sum this up, you said he's basically a moron. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, for it, a couple of reasons. One, he thought that the Grand Canyon was a ditch that no one would ever care about. And two, he left the Union Army and joined up with the Confederacy and ah, died in battle. So right. obviously a moron. He probably sent that tick to get you, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Ten years pass before anyone tries again. And then it's John Wesley Powell, who's a badass. Tries Who is again. a badass. Yes. Uh, did, you, did you get the photos I sent you for the... Uh, I did. I haven't looked yeah. at it yet. I just oh, okay. Well, when you look at it, you're going to go, oh, my God, that dude looks... <laughs> Hell yeah. I mean, not only is he a badass running around with just one arm yeah. anyway, but... On the other hand, he also looks like he would punch you in the face just for breathing. He looks mean. Okay. <laughs> he really looks mean. But I mean, we know, I mean, you know from his story how devoted he was to, you know, his wife Emma and everything. So he's probably a decent dude, but man, he looks, he looks mm. scary. Stern <laughs> father. Yeah. So. Uh, so the one of his boats kind of gets fucked. The other three are cool, but the one that gets hurt is no name like that yeah. essentially is that yeah, what we I guess i don't know i guess they gave up i, I, I have no idea why they called it that it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point i feel <laughs> yes, like you know yeah. some of the crew pieced out and then they died yeah, in the desert land there right? yeah, it took a wrong turn 40 years walking around um eventually <laughs> uh the other rest of people make it but he might not have been the first because um James White found almost dead on a raft, and he's quiet about this for the most part until press starts praising John Wesley Powell. He's kind of like, wait, did I pretty much almost die for nothing? Yeah, like his well, brother yeah. too. The other thing about to know about the Old West is that there were a lot of people full of a lot of bullshit out there. Sure. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's I mean, maybe maybe he did it. I don't know. I, I mean, I shouldn't say that I know that he didn't. Um, Powell certainly thought that he didn't. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, he was protecting his own reputation. But considering what he went through with his guys and his boat, and then this guy claimed that he came through on a raft that he made from some sticks. Right. It doesn't seem super credible. Sure. And, and even then, he even admitted that. Well, you know, I'm not sure exactly where I went into the canyon. I'm not sure exactly how long I was on the river. Okay, so, dude, you don't count. Yeah. You don't what, count. what are we even doing here? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Why are we wasting time on this? Sure. 1937, uh, Haldane Holdstrom tries solo, which um, is, you know, impressive in its own right or stupid. Yeah. You know, the line there is probably thin. But um, then there, there were in 1938 when Dr. El, uh, Elzada Clover and Lois Jotter beca uh, became the first woman to successfully raft through the canyon, which, I mean, is super cool because that's like super early. And I know like, and, oh, and women again, can do this. You know, like, like I said, do it. it's always guys going, oh, you know, only men can do such a thing. You yeah. Know, women, it's not for the little woman. And, right, you know, right, of course, right. They're immediately going to be proved wrong. Which of they course. Were, so. Uh, and then deaths in the canyon, tons of deaths and dis disappearances in the canyon. Bert Looper, Loper, I guess. Yeah. Um, experience yeah. Bert Loper. Uh, barely made it through, but gets hooked on like yeah, <laughs> adrenaline yeah. junkie kind of I stuff. Guess. I guess I, I'm gonna say yes, uh, considering that he decided to do it again for his 80th birthday. Amazing. Or said it didn't work out too well though. Yeah, still. bones are found 26 <laughs> years later. Yeah, uh, maybe yeah. his ghost still there. You know, you 
you think he would have been mad about going out that way? Like at that time? Uh, no, like- I don't think so. I, I mean, I mean, you know, I I'm thinking this, this is the, this is the thirties. Right. And the, the dude, you know, is thinking, you know, if I got to go, I'm 80, which is way past normal lifespan <laughs> yeah. at the time for, yeah. the, for the time. And he's, uh, that'd be the way to go. I mean, he's the grand old man of the Colorado. I mean, uh, isn't that the way you'd want to go? Yes, yes. And then you could be a ghost and hang around, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I mean, and, and he's just one of the ghost stories. I mean, there's a zillion of them. The Grand Canyon is such a cool place, man. I mean, as far as weird stories and mm-hmm. legends and accidents. And I mean, there were, there's two airplanes that crashed into each other over the grand Canyon. Wow. And there, and they, I mean, it was in such a remote spot that they could barely get the rescuers up there. Not that there was really much of anything to rescue, but yeah. even so, and there's even, and I mentioned just briefly about the lost underground city. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that was probably a tall tale cooked up by newspapers, but sure. According to stories, there was, an Egyptian city found underground in the Grand Canyon. And in, in North America. What's that? In yeah, North yeah, America. Yeah. It was filled with Egyptian treasure and carvings and statues and stuff. And supposedly the Smithsonian Institution came, sent people out to bring back some of the artifacts and stuff, but it was all kept really hush hush. I mean, I said, this is all, it's a long story, but interestingly, just as a final note on mm-hmm. this story, um, it is the the city was supposedly located in a part of the Grand Canyon that is not accessible to the public. It's closed. It's national park area where they they don't allow anyone to go in. And all around that area, all of the rock formations are named after Egyptian monuments. Hmm. Was it just like a dun, bunch dun, of- dun, That's just your you know little conspiracy. Thing. Well, I, yeah, I was just going to ask like. Them. Was it a bunch of like uh, uh, Nazi sympathizer sort of thing hiding stuff? I have shit, absolutely like... no idea. It was just supposed to be some sort of underground city, but and it appeared in the newspapers in like 1912. So I, it's probably a crock. I'm sure it was probably just somebody made up a good story, but it's a fun story. I like. So, I, I love know, it. Like, yeah, you know, don't let the truth know, get in so. the way. <laughs> um, to our main story, the most mysterious yes. incident was a vanishing that occurred in 1928 when honeymooners Glenn and Bessie Hyde arrived at the Grand Canyon with plans to have an adventure on the Colorado River. Uh, with everything you kind of, well, first off, I want to say this is when I realized, holy shit, your cold open was 13 pages long. I know, I know, it was very long, which isn't um, bad. I try not to just, do that. It's probably a record. I, I tried to use the cold open to introduce something similar, but I kind of felt like that this story really needed. Uh, a buildup of just how fucking crazy this idea was to take mm-hmm. this boat uh, of which I sent you a photograph of. And when you see it, you will go, Oh my God, <laughs> that they were going to take this boat through the grand Canyon. They built it literally in their garage. Oh. And it's when they told like, you know, when they told uh, Emery Kolb about, it, he's like, are you fucking kidding? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's, you know, I, I just I needed to build it up, but I know it was very long. And no, I wasn't wasn't upset of it. I wasn't so. mad about it. I thought it was just like <laughs> I think it might be a record. Um, I think so too. Definitely for a cold open. And I'm sure that when I we've see, had entire episodes that have been that long. Just the so. cold, well, <laughs> yeah. just the cold open. Um, but no, I'm sure when I see this boat, like I probably wouldn't even want to take it on the pond that I'm staring no. at right now outside no. of my apartment that's probably ten not. feet deep. Um, so yeah, I can't wait to see that, but. Uh, Glenn Hyde, Spokane, 1898, ends up marrying uh, Bessie uh, Halley. Is that how it is pronounced? Um, uh, Halley, Bessie, Haley. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, Bessie Haley okay. in Twin Falls. Yeah, she's not a farm girl, and in different lives. Sorry, no, it's good. I mean, she 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 loves Glenn. Their their honeymoon's planned to run the rapids, and they wanted to become famous, and they did. And it, long story short, like even j- kind of jumping to the end, I wrote down like, what do you think? Also, this might have been a way they'd be happy to go out, like doing something crazy as a couple. I, I don't know. So early. I, I, I don't. Maybe Glenn. I, I don't well, think yeah. Bessie. Based on based on. Her reaction to her trip halfway through when she met the Colbs, I'm gonna guess this was not her cup of tea by the time yeah. it was done. Yeah. I think she probably just wanted to finish it up. I mean, I think she probably, I mean, probably loved the thrill of it, you know, um, yeah. because that seemed to be something that she'd sort of adopted. But <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't the lifestyle she was used to. Yeah, you know? she I mean, got she too real up on a farm and racing the rapids and stuff. And she was like an artist and a, you know, bohemian, as they called him at the time. Sure. You know, grew up in an educated family from out east. You know, it's not, you know, this was something that I, I'm not convinced she was thrilled with once people met her. Maybe she bit off more than she could chew or didn't exactly yeah, understand yeah, exactly. what she was getting into. Um, it's like, yeah, when people are like, you know, what, we're just going to go to California. We're going to live in a van. It's all going to work yeah. out. And then <laughs> right. they're like, fuck. And then I yeah. see him, you know, two months later. Um, uh-huh. They so the every cold, like you said, tries to help asking about the boat. And it was kind of not even a bad omen. It's just kind of like this is not a good idea. Right. I mean, this <laughs> is a guy who's seen everybody come through here at one time or another. I mean, this guy's been all over taking photographs. He's got this trail. You know, it's a popular spot. He's selling, you know, written burrows to people who are coming up and down the hill and they're taking photographs of all these people. So he'd seen a little of everything and they didn't even have life jackets. And it, it, he was understandably concerned. So yes, probably the best way to the top to describe it yeah they're never seen alive again after that um by anybody we know at least they're worried about the haunting words uh, of course they're worried about the haunting words that came before that eventually they do find the boat the equipment's still there glenn and bessie are missing yeah uh, it's kind of like the marie celeste that's what i was you thinking know, or something yeah. you know the mary celeste is you know everybody everything is in place but the people are gone and it was the yeah. same kind of thing there's no gas I mean, leak or know, anything on there like, no right know, right one. right I mean, there there could be explanations for this. I mean, it could have been maybe, as some people suggested, that maybe a waves came along, swept them both off the boat, but the boat righted itself, and by the time they found it, had dried out. Yeah. Uh, who knows? I mean, there are logical explanations, but, you know, the other ones are a lot more fun. Yeah, say so this plausible <laughs> thing is not nearly yeah. as much fun as, you know. Yeah, exactly. Shit. Uh, yeah, did Liz kill him and start a new life? Um, <laughs> I, I, at first, I thought this would probably kind of end really quickly, but then you started diving more in um to uh wait what's her name um georgie georgie clark White. yes 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 who sounds awesome and it's just i know a little too weird but it's really cool yeah like yeah i I, you know i i i love her story anyway her story by itself is a blast i mean this woman was so cool i mean there's a reason that that last year they gave her a postage stamp man oh i mean she was just really cool she was a a pioneer Mm -hmm. on the river men and women alone but especially for women and you know i i you know they they bury her and then they start finding all this stuff in her house that you know she you know she left it that's what it sounded like for them to find and I think that was kind of her way of just having a last laugh and doing something funny to her friends. Yeah, you know? and one last bit. Exactly. Just one last one last thing to remember her by, you know, and, and they took it very seriously. But 
you know, I think that she probably was a, a, like a lot of people, you know, she um, she made up her biography to suit her what mm -hmm. she wanted it to be. You know, she talked about growing up in Chicago, but she really didn't. But it made her sound cooler if she did. You know, she didn't want it to sound like she wanted it to sound like she came from the big city and came out here and became this, you know, well-known, you know, rafter. But I mean, you know, she started all that because her daughter had died, you know, and I think that part was true. Um, but, you know, planting seeds that, you know, she might have been, you know, Bessie Hyde was had to be like a great practical joke, especially in that community, you know, where they all really knew the story. And, you know, I don't know. I just I love it. You know, I love that she did it. I literally wrote my very last note with this, which just said this was a fun one. Like, yeah, maybe it's yeah. because it wasn't about brutal it murders wasn't, and stuff. Yeah, it wasn't. Well, yeah, we, it's probably wasn't about a murder, you know, although I do love the story about the skeleton they found in Emory Cole's garage. Right, well, even right. though it turned out to be a suicide, uh, yeah, the bullet, the bullet hole in his head. Uh, still, why did he have it? <laughs> right, know, yeah, that's that's weird in itself. So. Yeah, and I did at first. I was like, okay, I thought, we're gonna get to that part later. There was no explanation at front, but then I was like, oh wait, no, we just don't know. Yeah, <laughs> we really, just don't know. We really don't know why he had the body. I mean, we they think they know who the guy is, but well, they don't even know his name. They just know he was some dude who committed suicide on the rim of the canyon and. You know, probably expected to fall in and didn't. <laughs> right, downer, right. Which is a real downer, but I don't I know mean, anyway. And, and so it's it's unlikely that Bessie murdered Glenn. So we did kind of get away from a, a vanishing story, you know, that wasn't a gruesome murder. But I'll see what I could do to bring that back. Yeah, let, let, let's next let's turn up the let's turn it up the energy next time. You know, I want some blood and some uh some, <laughs> no this was a nice fun story. And I mean yeah. I haven't been into the Grand Canyon uh, rapids. I've been in Colorado and done some whitewater rafting and stuff and like I mean well, yeah you it, tell you, it can you want to hear really weird Grand Canyon story? Hell yeah I have yeah I mean I, I've been out there as far as you know um I've written about the ghost stories and things and visited the lodges and things are supposed to be haunted and all that. That's that's adult stuff. As a kid, though, the first time I ever saw the Grand Canyon, I must have been maybe 12 mm -hmm. would be my guess. And at that point in my life, I had never flown in an airplane. OK. And in those days, because I mean, you know, we were in. You know, was this crop duster like biplanes? Oh, so it's no, like the, it this was the Wright brothers. Ago. Like, did they have to take off? No, yeah, no, it, it wasn't quite that long ago, but it was long enough ago that they still allowed this because they don't allow it anymore. But you used to be able to, like Emery Kolb's friend, you used to be able to fly down into the Grand Canyon in a plane. Mm -hmm. So the very first time I ever got on an airplane and took a flight. It was through the Grand Canyon. That's amazing. Tiny little plane. And uh, I still remember that. And yeah, um, I bet. it was terrifying. But, you know, it makes every Memorable. other flight I've taken since seem like nothing. Boring know? as hell. Turbulence doesn't bother me. Uh, engine went out. Ah, who cares, <laughs> you know, at least I'm not in the Grand Canyon in a twin engine, you know, prop plane. So but yeah, I have that's a, the first time I ever flew. So weird. That, that's amazing. I do have like a, a kind of a parallel story. But uh, oh, first, yeah. I think I told you this, but the first time my father was ever in an airplane, he went skydiving and 
jumped out of it. Oh God! And then in his in his older age, though, he's like, "I'm not getting on a plane. I'm too scared." And I was like, "Yeah, what the fuck? What the hell?" <laughs> like, it makes sense. What do you? Yeah, I was like, "What? Do you, what could be worse than what you went through?" Yeah. Like, you then know, falling that. out of the first one. Yeah, yeah. it's like you don't make any sense. But um, <laughs> so, uh, did you? I mean. I guess you wouldn't have pictures or anything from that. It wasn't a self. I don't. You know, my mom might somewhere. I, yeah. I, I ought to. I ought to ask her. If she's I bet it was amazing. The Grand yeah. Canyon trip. I would love to to see that plane yeah. now after all this time. So that's yeah, where we where are you going? Uh, we were just on a trip. I think we were on our way to California to see my aunt and uncle. My mm-hmm. uncle was the commander at uh, March Air Force Base outside of L.A. at the time. And because um, I remember we went out, we went to Disneyland and stuff while we were uh, out okay. there in the beach and stuff. Uh, but I think that was we were on our way there. We used to take these like epic road trips when I was a kid. My parents were farmers. So um, in the summer, there's nothing to do. So you could get away for a while. We were out of school and stuff. So uh, we just pack up the station wagon. No, no shit. Chevy Chase mm-hmm. vacation station yeah. wagon and would just drive and just drive and drive and drive. And, you know, but it was cool because we got to see so many things, you know, I mean, Yellowstone and, you know, all over California and the Southwest and Vegas. I mean, all this stuff when we were kids, you know, which a lot of people didn't get to do, which was kind of cool, you know, mm-hmm. to, to have it under the belt. But um, but that was the first time I'd ever been to the Grand Canyon. Uh, I've been back since, but that, I mean, you know, you, that's something to remember at, at of least, course. you know, because it was, sh- it was that adventure. That's for sure. I'm still waiting for my first time there. I've flown over it by it. And stuff, oh yeah. But never actually got to really go down and visit. So yeah. yeah get one day. One of these days. Yeah. 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 Um, anything that we that I skipped over that you want to touch back on or anything with this story? Nah, I don't think so. I think we're good. There's fucking the episodes are long enough i mean i got done and i think it was almost an hour yeah it's been really dialogue. fun uh, editing it yeah um, it's but, not yeah at least it's not no one of those horrible mistake days thank those god are, those are I mean, there's some funny but it's not you as bad as, yeah it's not as bad as usual well, because i all i can think about when i do that is that i know that you're going to have to edit this thing mm-hmm. and it's already long and I don't want to make it any longer for you. So I get really frustrated with myself. Well, that is you super know, a kind, normal but... size episodes, not so bad, but I know you're going to have to fuck with well, this thing. That's really nice, but you don't need to, first off, you don't need to worry about that. And second off, I've learned, like I've, I've told you this for years now, but I, I've learned pretty well to like look at the audio file and kind of yeah. tell he probably messed up here. This part, the start of this looks like the start of this. So I'm yeah. guessing he yeah. did it again and so i got right. pretty quick at it you know <laughs> oh, that's good what sucks though is like sometimes you'll go for like three or four minutes and then you'll fuck up you're like i gotta start that paragraph over oh if yeah i, if I, I didn't get halfway it, through the paragraph and I've, I've already i i know that i slightly messed it up yeah but not in no one would know but me i know but, but i hey, can't stop thinking about it i get it so i have to start over i get so. it man and i i want happens. you to feel happy about the stuff you're creating so it it works um well i wanted to give a quick shout out to our latest subscribers on patreon so thank you so much for supporting the show to val andy samantha glenn juan and luez luz i'm not exactly sure but thank you so much um for supporting the show we really appreciate it you can check that out at patreon.com slash american hauntings uh okay do you wait do you have any patreon stuff or anybody no. or okay no I'm just move no, on because no. last time no. we had both had a bunch of stuff i know i know i know <laughs> well it is then it is now time for our ghostwriter segment so if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre you can email us at american hauntings podcast at gmail.com this email comes to us from 
Christine, and it is titled podcast. So I saw it right With away. A question no. mark? No, right? Oh, podcast. Um, that oh. Would, that would <laughs> I wasn't be, sure how you. Were that would be that more time. appropriate. <laughs> but it says, "Hello, Troy and Cody. I came across your podcast when I was searching for a podcast on my hometown of Black River Falls, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I've been I've been addicted ever since. I started season one and have been listening every chance I get. I just started season seven. I love everything about your show." Due to unforeseen circumstances, I'm permanently disabled, and you both have gotten me through some extremely hard days. Thank you so much for that. Keep up the awesome job. Um, Christine, thank you so much for writing wow. in. I'm yeah. very sorry about you know everything that's been going on. Um, I- I'm so happy we can help you deal with something. like it, it's, Troy and I just being stupid and to know that it makes somebody else's day a little bit better, like that's why we keep doing this a lot yeah of times, you know? yeah that's true that's and true. yeah so um i wish you the best if um there's anything we can do for you you know let me know tweet at us whatever and um thank you so much for listening and for writing in that's all i got I'm okay done. all right man well i know we have kept everybody for a very long time this episode so i will thank all of them for listening all of you for listening so um as we always say share it with your friends um leave us a review on itunes as, as cody mentioned earlier um, don't forget to use the discount code podcast when you're shopping for books or tours or events or whatever at AmericanHauntings.net. Uh, and you'll find there is also a link on our page for Cody's shirt store, American Hauntings Clothing. Oh, and you can you. use the same code there too, uh, which means you always get 10% off anything that you order by using just all you got to do is put in podcast when you go to check out. So uh, Cody mentioned that we also have uh, a Patreon page and uh, we also have two full seasons of our other podcast dead men do tell tales on there right now um we're just about very soon starting uh season three so you will have brand new shows from us every single week and i get to learn what season three is about what's that you don't even know yet i don't probably probably this week i bet yeah be so well actually next week but yes it will be coming very soon no i'm sorry i'll get to learn this week oh well yeah that's true unless you're sending me the shit monday yeah if you're lucky so okay anyway become a supporter at patreon.com slash american awnings so that's it for me so awesome up now and let Cody go ahead and do. Yeah, this yeah, I'm sure you. Uh, this episode, yeah, of I saw it. Podcast I'll stop talking now. So. Was written by. Troy oh, you're. Oh, Taylor. you're already started. It I'm was sorry. produced and it was edited by me, Cody Beck. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends, neighbors, random people on the street about it, and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm gonna try to figure out how to get us on YouTube eventually, but we'll, we'll really? get there. Yeah. Do you it's been, do? It's like is a that thing. just a? Uh, we don't have to have. Uh, we're not on it because we both of us half the time look ridiculous when we're doing. This. No, so we do have an American Hauntings just YouTube voices. account, but yeah, it's basically be the logo of the episode. Oh, I see. And then People can listen that way. Yeah, it's huh. like one of the second biggest like podcast platforms. Really? Apparently, is YouTube. Yeah, huh. I was like, what well, the hell? Be darn. We're missing yeah, out. I guess we should do that. Okay. Yeah. So cool. hey, if you guys want to listen to us on YouTube, tell me. Um, yeah, 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 we'll do it if, if yeah, if people yeah. that's what they're looking for. Sure. You find the website AmericanHongspodcast.com for more info about the show. There's gonna be pictures and things too for the yep. other episodes, uh, yep. links and more. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Troy's TikTok, TikTok, anywhere else that you waste hours every day, like TikTok, uh, when you're yeah, supposed that to be is, working yeah, or studying. Monstrous time waster. We're we promise we're much more entertaining. Uh thanks for listening. We couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. See you later. Oh, man. Okay. So we're making TikToks. Uh, no. <laughs> that, dude, okay. Thanks for rolling with the punches with this and, and being able to Oh, yeah, about yeah. Of course. That. Um, Much less stressful trying to figure this stuff out today. Yeah, of course. Um, um, I'm sorry. I, I would not have. I should have asked you. If-
before we started.